Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Ah, Time is just after 7.30. Sunday morning again. Time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, a very good morning to Millie Ross. Good morning, Millie. Morning, Pam. What a uh, what an exciting spring morning. Oh. It's it was a uh, we've got to say it was a perler of a weekend. I missed last Stunning. weekend's sunshine being uh, trapped in a landscape conference, which was incredibly inspiring, but also a little bit heartbreaking when you came out at lunchtime to see the sun shining. Without well, this you. weekend's made up for it, Millie. Absolutely, I had a um, had a really nice um, wander around the Williamstown Botanic Gardens yesterday afternoon. With um, there was lots of people kicking around because you know, first smell of sunshine in Melbourne, and everyone heads for the freezing water. But uh, no, look, it's such a lovely old garden, and um, if you haven't been down there, it's such a great place for a, an afternoon stroll. It's only a small garden; it's really accessible, um, so anyone can get in and around. And some, some just the most wonderful avenue of palms and and some lovely old plants. And I know there's a lot of work being being done over the last um, oh, 10 years. Oh, yes. To, to, what a difference they've made, to, you know, there. put the garden back together. And, mm. and it was pretty gorgeous. There's a, there's a huge, really beautiful um, golden elm there. And, uh, and I sort of wandered over. It's just starting to flower, you know. And so elms, that's probably my favourite time when, with elms is when they start to actually flower. And uh, this woman came over with her friends and she looked at me and she could see I was looking quite closely at the flowers on this huge, huge tree that almost touches the ground, you know, at its, at its extremities. And she said oh, my gosh, I'm getting married here in four weeks and there's no leaves on it. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's so lovely because you're uh, going to learn about trees and life. <laughs> so don't worry, don't worry, it's on its way. <laughs> but, uh, look, just such a, yeah, great garden to get down and there's so many lovely little gardens throughout um, Melbourne to, to get out and, you know, lie down, read a book in the sun. Oh, and, um, yes. You'll, you'll be a lot happier for it. Yep. We also have to say very good morning to A.B. Bishop. Good morning, A.B. Oh, good morning, Pam, Millie, everybody out there. Yes, fantastic day yesterday, fantastic day again today, I think. The um, glass house is absolutely bursting at the moment. No, I bet. Um, yeah, just things are going crazy and saying, look, just get me out of here. So <laughs> yeah. that, that's, that's the plan for the next week or so to get things out and some, some more seeds in and started. You can't just, snooze, can you, at this time of oh, the year? You just can't. Well, I mean, for firstly, the, the girls, the four girls that we've got are all up and about really early. So um, definitely no snoozing. Because, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they, well, they're, they're little noises come into your dreams. And I'm like, why am I dreaming about hens? Oh, yes, they're the go again. So. <laughs> yeah, but no, it was um, lovely driving in this morning. As you know, light now, so um, kangaroos everywhere. I really feel like I should be, instead of giving a traffic report, I should be giving a fauna report every Sunday yeah. morning. <laughs> yep. You know, the ruse on Menzies Road and um, Rosellas and rainbow lorikeets down Pigeon Bank and, you know, but uh, yeah, no, very very nice way to start the day. 26 degrees next Saturday, they're oh, forecasting. Really? Yes. Fantastic. Oh, that's exciting. So okay. my, my biggest dilemma at the moment, having been raising tomato and capsicum and eggplant seedlings on the kitchen windowsill. Some of the tomatoes, I'm saying, look, normally I don't plant till October, do I? Do I... Put them out early and run the risk, but yeah, well, it is. I mean, it is that. I, I would say never, never go early on things like beans and cucumbers. Yeah. Those, those things you go from big seed straight in the soil. But I think a little stressed out tomato can actually be quite a prolific one often. So, how big are they, Pam? 
Oh, well, they're four leaf stage. Oh, they're, yeah. You know, about that big. You could, I mean, if, you're gonna, if there's going to be a frost, you could always put a couple of <clears throat> mini stakes with a plastic bag yes, over the top. exactly, exactly. Just to them, yeah. But the thing is, the one problem with, with when you're raising um, seedlings on a windowsill, um, even though I put them out during the during the, the day into the sunshine when I can find the sunshine, they do tend to get leggy. Yes. And what they need is to be put in the ground and, and, and buried deeply to, yes. um, yeah, to yeah. make the most of that before they, they just get too too tall and too, you know, yeah. impossible to handle. So. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, that is a great way to plant tomatoes, just taking it down to, the, you know, the first leaf stage where it will, you know, start rooting at that node there. Um, yeah, but um, I've had I've had um, tomatoes in the glasshouse all through winter and they grew but sort of sat there and didn't really want to do anything much in particular, but um, they've already flowered, so they're, they're ready to go out. So I, this year I will definitely have tomatoes before Christmas, so I'm just putting it out there. Mm, yeah. I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> and someone who knows all about vegetables who's just joined us in the studio is Simon Rickard. Morning, Simon. Good morning, Pam. Yeah. everyone at home. Yes, I mean, you wouldn't be putting things, you're not going to be planting tomatoes. No. Didn't it? You had snow on Wednesday, yeah, was it? Right. Yeah, it was snow. <laughs> uh, frost this morning and a frost yesterday as well. So it's, you know, when people say to me, oh, I always put my tomatoes in on Melbourne Cup Day, I think, oh, you're mad. You know, you need to really test the soil temperature. And one of the best things you can get yourself um, uh, if you want to plant tomatoes is a soil thermometer. Yes. Yes. I've been looking, we, we had this conversation a couple of months ago, and I've been looking for one as beautiful as yours and I can't find one. But it is, I mean, it is that age-old thing that, it, you know, that's light, moisture, temperature. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And if you put your tomatoes in too early, of course, they'll just sit there and languish and they'll they can get root mm. rot. But, yeah. but you put them in when the soil temperature gets up to 21 degrees Celsius at least, if you put them in then they rock it away. Mm. Yeah, because they're really tropical plants, of course. Oh, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's just that we've had we've had such beautiful weather recently mm. that us gardeners all get itchy to get well, stuck yeah, into it, it too early. Right. Just because the, the you know the temp the ambient temperature is completely different to the soil temperature, exactly. I suppose, and that's the thing. Just to to constantly remind yourself, even though you're in shorts, <laughs> 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 your uh, your tomatoes might not want to be. <laughs> but isn't it amazing to think? I mean, I, for starters, I didn't actually know tomatoes were tropical, but the the fact that we can grow plants from, you know, the tropics down here, really, mm. it, it's a big testament to the plants themselves, isn't it? They yeah. really do want to grow and if you're giving them the right conditions and, you know, maybe that little microclimate. Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly That's right. right. I mean, you wouldn't think of growing other tropical plants outside, you know, you'd automatic orchids, for example, you'd put in a glass house. Mm. Um, but you can grow them outside when the temperatures are warm enough. Mm. So, And the same is mm. true of tomatoes and pumpkins mm. and, you know, zucchini and all those tropical crops, mm. eggplants. I guess that it does ring true when you, you travel somewhere, like you travel to, you know, Southeast Asia and you see how many eggplant varieties <laughs> and, you know, like, are constantly pro- yeah. produced, you know, and yes. you sort of think, oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense to me yep. now. We've sort of, you know, selected three or four that yep. y- that work well and, and produce well. But even, you know, even in Melbourne, I, I almost don't bother with things like eggplants and, you know, the large bell-fruited capsicums because I just find they just, we just, you've only, one in three seasons is long enough and yep. hot enough that you get a good harvest exactly yeah. um, and so some of those smaller varieties I find much more rewarding yep. but I, I still I'm I'm still in two minds every year whether I give up a bit of space yep. to those crops I did have a great um, I think it was called uh, Mohican a really oh. great white um, eggplant a few years ago that just mm. was a really 
prolific producer, only kind of a mid-sized fruit, I guess, not a tiny one, yep. um, but an excellent producer. And I bought some Italian capsicums off a, a couple out in some strange part of Melbourne I'd never been to before that I had to go out for some reason and I found this little place. And, um, and I had them fruiting for two years. So, right. you know, I, I tend to try and plant my capsicums on a nice sort of northwest um, area where I can leave them and then I actually try and overwinter them if I can, mm-hmm. which you've had yep. no chance. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, for, for three years, three or four years actually, I was uh, in my in my last garden. I had um, a row of the yellow sort of Hungarian uh, wax sort of capsicum and I'd, I'd be getting them well before Christmas because yep. they were in their second and third year. So now they're actually starting to produce foliage. They'll be flowering within a couple of weeks and, and yep. then, you know, actually have... Well, it's the curse of the gardener to, to want what you can't have, isn't of course. it? Absolutely. Like, you know, I do the same thing Millie every year with, with melons. Um, melons are another tropical crop and um, uh, I, I really can't grow them in my climate but I put them in every year hoping <laughs> I'll get one or two and so I'm out there in, in March because we, we get we get frost until December and the frost starts again at the beginning of April. Yep. So I'm out there in late March looking at them going, come on, come on, you know, ripen will you? And and last year they didn't. So you know, that was kind of five square metres of garden space that I lost yes. that year. But, you know, it's, it's all good fun, isn't lost it? Lost to folly. Yeah, I did. Exactly. Uh, I was speaking to a, a chef through the week who said that he's got some great advice years ago. He was sitting with um, his neighbour who, who, who had, you know, he's an older man in his late 50s and he said, look, mate, you know, he's asking him all these questions and I think, you know, I see this frustration come with some young gardens, gardeners who are over-enthusiastic and want to be perfect, yep. you yep. know, and they think you can be perfect. You know, they want to just unlock the secrets and he, he said he said to me look i'm 60 i've had about 30 goes at growing tomatoes and if i'm lucky i'll have 30 more <laughs> don't worry about it just keep trying and you keep Good learning advice. and it's so true Excellent you know you advice. get one i don't i'm probably not going to grow much this summer because i'm you know i'm just going to miss that window and i'm like oh gosh i'm missing a whole go <laughs> but i'll find somewhere to, to plant some things to so you're without to a garden experience. at the moment aren't well you? no I'm, I'm in between gardens so i'm you know i'm, I'm so, gardening so in you pots. see millie sort of randomly um popping over to your house planting things you know the last time i didn't have a garden i bulldozed my friend's backyard we were not working together so <laughs> now I'm scared. really scared now yes <laughs> I don't have a garden. Do you mind if I just make some yeah, changes yeah, to yours? Little tweaks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I must get to some community announcements because there's a few things happening today. Um, firstly, the Native Orchid Show is on this weekend, so today being the last day of that, running from 9am this morning through to 4 o'clock this afternoon. It's at the Mount Waverley Community Centre, which is at 47 Miller Crescent in Mount Waverley. Uh, right opposite the Mount Waverley Railway Station there, Melway's Map 70, D1. Uh, secondly, today is uh, the first, the launch and the first open uh, opening of Open Gardens Victoria. Now, this is taking place at Musk Cottage, which is Rick Eckersley's um, inspirational garden. The address is 371 Musk Creek Road in Flinders, um, it opens at 10 o'clock this morning through to 4.30. Entry is $10, under 18s are free. And um, they're going to have uh, lots of guided tours, food, coffee, local wines, plant sales, children's activities and door prizes. Now, if you want to find out more about the program of Open Gardens with Open Gardens Victoria for this season, go to www.opengardensvictoria.org. 
Now, also on today is the Mornington Peninsula uh, Victorian Spring Garden and Lifestyle Show. Now, this is taking place at Mornington Racecourse this weekend. Um, All sorts of happenings down there as well. Some of the show highlights include garden and landscape displays, rare plants collector's corner, Uh, The Plant Village, which is incorporating uh, latest release plants and garden products. Floral displays, fresh flower market, uh, a budding bloomers area for the children, uh, a garden photography competition, the kitchen garden and paddock to plate cooking demonstrations, lectures, workshops and great food and life entertainment. Now, ticket prices are $19. Concession is $16.00. Kids under 15 are free, and as I say, that's all taking place down at Mornington Peninsula um, at the Mornington Racecourse uh, today. So hop down to there. Now, a couple that are coming up, um, Pepper Tree Place are having their next incredible Coburg food swap next Saturday. This always takes place on the first Saturday of every month. 10 a.m. through to 2 p.m. at 512 Sydney Road in Coburg. Uh, The uh, special workshop they're featuring next Saturday is sourdough and bread making with Ross Parker. Uh, He'll be uh, doing all of that at the wood-fired oven there and going through the making, the baking and the tasting, which, of course, everyone will be into, of sourdough bread. Uh, As well, they're having their chair yoga again with Trudy Radburn. Uh, all day there'll be the nursery open, there'll be the cafe open and there'll be a swap table if you like to bring along some extras from your garden's harvest or tips or recipes or whatever. So um, that's a free event and of course Pepper Tree Place is on the corner of Sydney Road and Bell Street there in Coburg. Uh, coming up Next weekend, uh, the next garden open for Open Gardens Victoria is a historic garden, uh, opening Saturday the 3rd, Sunday the 4th of October, and it's a cottage garden, um, and it's also opening as part of the City of Whittlesea's Cultural Heritage Program for 2015. So um, it was established um, more than 165 years ago by a pioneering family from Germany, who set out to create a haven that reminded them of their homeland. Uh, Now, it's it's, uh, located in the uh, Westgarth Town Pioneer Precinct in the city of Whittlesea. It's called Zeebel's Farmhouse Garden. It'll be open along with the farmhouse and the outbuildings between 10 and 4.30 on both Saturday and Sunday. And entry for that one is Gold Coin donation. Again, if you want more information, you can contact Liz on 0418 442 785. That's 0418 442 785. Or again, go to the website, which is opengardensvictoria.org.au. Also, uh, next weekend, which is the last one I'll mention for the moment, there are five open gardens in... uh, the Upper Yarra Valley, which is for the Upper Yarra Valley Garden Club. Uh, Virginia Haywood's Garden is one of those gardens open. Um, the address for Virginia's Garden, and you can then get uh, the address for all the other ones, is 50 Linwood Road in Seville. Or if you'd like more information about it, the phone number is 
2828. That's 59662828. And I'll leave some of the other ones I have because they're for a little later on. Um, I should uh, tell listeners that we are going to be going into a very special interview at 8 o'clock, but we do have time to squeeze in a couple of um, of uh, gardening questions if you'd like to join us this morning before 8 o'clock. The number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. We have Millie Ross, Simon Rickard and AB Bishop in the studio. Or this morning we have Derek on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Derek, 94198377. Millie, you've brought in a whole lot of uh, plants. Let's I have. make a start. Well, One I, of my favourites there. Well, there's a few of my favourites. Okay. You know, I, I have a habit of sourcing plants in unusual places. So, um, you know, one of the beauties of living in the west of Melbourne is I live, you know, walking distance of Footscray. And um, one of the lovely, th- one of the things I like most about living in Footscray at this time of the year is the amount of plants that are for sale on the street. Um, so there's a particular, there's two corners actually. Uh, there's a particular corner where um, a group of, um, usually it's women, but, uh, yeah, well, actually, it's always women sell some leafy vegetables and there's always some potted plants. And there's one, one grower in particular I'm really fond of. And, um, and so I often will just, you know, I'll pay, you know, I paid five bucks for that pot. And, you know, I probably could grow it myself for, for not much, you know, for a lot less. But I really enjoy the interaction. I really enjoy seeing what she's got. So I grabbed a couple of things that I think are really interesting food crops to grow um, at this time of the year. Um, the, the first one is uh, actually uh, a thing that I've... I've I've managed to overwinter it once, but um, not not since. But it's um it's a, a plant called often it's called known as sawtooth coriander, yes. Mexican coriander. Um, it's actually a little thistle. It's a ringium fetidum, I think, and fetid meaning a bit stinky. Um, but uh, it has a flavour not unlike um, actual coriander, and uh, it's a small perennial plant. If I grew it, grew it in Brisbane, it would seed all over the garden and I'd always have it. Uh, in Melbourne, it's a little bit more of a mollycoddle, and I find it's, um, it prefers just a little bit of shade and shelter um, coming into spring. But, um, you know, I love coriander. So, you know, it's a love or loathe sort of thing, mm. um, and I grow as much as I can in winter, but obviously you, you can't grow it in the warmer weather. So that's when I start to use this. And, and certainly um, travelling in, particularly in um, Laos, it was used really, really heavily in a lot of soups. Um, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a, a really great, great little um, addition to a, a lot of dishes. You won't get that same sort of prolific growth you can get a, out of a, a coriander plant. Um, it is a small sort of, you know, toothed leaf. Um, probably it's almost at its mature height, you know, sort of 10 centimetres, something like that. Um, and it does produce that gorgeous little oryngium sort of flower head um, when it's ready to to, to kick, you know, kick the bucket. But um, yeah, look, a great little plant, and and I was very chuffed to see it. There's two. I've, I've got two plants there. I'll actually divide them up and and pop them into a, a couple of buckets. So yeah, just I mean, I guess I'm always advocating we head to a good quality nursery to buy plants. But I'm also happy for you to head next door to your neighbours, uh, or up the road, or to a street corner where people. Are... Well, this is the sort of thing you wouldn't see at a nursery anyway. Exactly. Oh, it's very hard to yeah. come by. Yeah. Mm. So yes. you can buy it by seed. I, I haven't raised it from seed in Melbourne. I don't know if you have. Simon, no, I haven't. But no. I think. I think it would it, take though. its time and um, and you would need a little poly house or some sort of situation to get it coming along really quickly. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've bought uh, I've bought so many plants. I've bought a lot of things that I've never eaten. There's a there's one lady who comes uh, from Springvale. She has a uh, an old pram 
kids' pram that she fills with plants and she gets on the train and comes to Footscray to sell. So she obviously sells in both shopping centres. But she won't talk to me. <laughs> She's an older lady and I keep trying to ask her questions and the girl just says, just don't, just don't even ask. <laughs> but, you know, like um, I get, uh, you know, I grow a lot of perilla now and because I've grown it a few years in a row at seeds. But, you know, that's the sort of thing you can get from, um, you know, the street corners and, um, and yeah, so lots of perilla, um, the little fish herb, you know, just some unusual things that if you're into unusual flavours, I would suggest to you come to Footscray, have an avocado smoothie because if you've never had one of them, you've, you haven't lived, <laughs> and, uh, and go plant shopping on the street. I love that idea of buying from different cultures. I mean, oh. I was in uh, a Chinese supermarket or Asian supermarket down um, Victoria Street, Richmond, a couple of weeks ago, and boy, oh boy, I mean, there's an entire aisle dedicated to mushrooms. You know, I'm allergic to mushrooms, so I was practically breaking out and hiding as I was walking down there. But it was just incredible to see all these dehydrated vegetables mm. and whatnot. But then also in their, you know, in their fresh food section, um, they've got all these kinds of plants, really mm. unusual greens mm. and everything, and bursting, you know, with freshness. Obviously picked, you know, only you know a day or so earlier. Yeah. So I mean, just definitely, if you want to have a go at growing galangal and ginger, um, you know, that's where to source it. Don't buy it from Coles. Yeah. Um, well, don't go to Coles anyway, but, um, you know, that's that's where to source it. If you, you go into some of the Asian grocers, that's where you're going to find the freshest um, rhizomes and you can actually sort of pick a nice big plant one. I mean, the other plant that I brought in is um, is one that I would ordinarily grow from seed. And, I, I look, you know, I wanted to, to buy a couple of things off her. And, and looking at it, I think she's actually propagated this from cuttings. And this is something I have propagated from cuttings from Little Saigon Market, you know. So years ago I got some, some nice big fresh pieces. This is um, a plant called Bacella alba rubra, I think, this one, um, which is, uh, what, what did you call it, a Malabar spinach? Malabar spinach. Yeah. Yep. So it's a, it's a great climbing vegetable. I don't necessarily like the taste that much. I can do thin slices of it in a salad. It's quite citrusy, um, you know, big fleshy thick leaf. It's used as Beautiful a looking plant. mucilaginous thickener yes. in many cultures, I think. Yes. So you chuck it in at the end to actually thicken up a stew um, in a lot of African cuisine, I yes, think, as well as Asian. Definitely. So um, just a really interesting plant. But apart from anything, it's really beautiful. Mm. So it's glorious to look at and it will just climb without going rampant. Absolutely. And this red stem variety, so the, mm. the leaves will get to sort of seven centi- centimetres round, maybe a little bit bigger, really rigid, really beautiful, glossy, dark red. And, and I know um, last year at, at the, the Flower and Garden Show, Diggers had that pile of pumpkins and mm. one of the, one of the pl- plants they'd grown was actually this. Uh, Bacella alba was grown up over an arbour and at the time it was right at the end of the season. It also had its black inky black seed heads on it and people could not stop looking at this thing yes. and um and you know as as someone who's experimenting a bit with dyeing fabrics and things you know we were straight away thinking that that's got to be a great plant for dyeing but um you know it's, it's it is an interesting vegetable if you've got a really hot spot if you've got a vertical spot that you you struggle to grow other climbing veggies on because it's a bit hot this is the thing to actually use and um you know ab- absolutely ornamental and you can get seed from of this or if uh, if you were lucky enough i i have managed to strike um, cuttings of the the green uh, form that I bought at at the market. You know, there's plenty of things you can – I mean, there's plenty of environmental weeds for sale in Asian grocers. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's lots of those plants that actually will propagate very easily, even from cuttings at the the supermarket or at the the grocer. We need to get to our first caller. We have uh, Lois in Dramana online. Good morning, Lois. Hello. Um, I have a pruning question – I have a viburnum genus hedge, and in um, it's about three metres in some places, 
that I want to keep it below two metres and uh, I'm wondering if it's the right time now. Um, yeah, Lois, now's a fantastic time to, to prune Viburnum tenus hedges mm-hmm. and you can uh, cut it back as hard as you like, actually. You can cut right back into bare wood with those if you need to. Oh, um, and at this time of year, they will replace the, the, the foliage you've cut off quite quickly. Right, because it has got new green leaves mm-hmm. and it has flowered. So uh, I'm pleased to hear that news because um, it's right next to um, a, a decking Yep. And I want to be able to see over the top of it, not be crowded out. Yes, like. that's right. And do it now because it'll 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 fill out and get some new foliage oh, quite that, quickly. That's lovely. Thank you very much. That's all right. Bye-bye. Bye. And uh, next up we have Robert down in Phillip Island. Morning, Robert. Hello. How are you all? Had better luck this week? Uh, look, uh, Wednesday's the big day. Oh, right. I didn't get a chance, but look, every cloud has a silver lining. <laughs> I'm the proud owner shortly of two beautiful ganders. Two young geese. Right. So I will be having roast goose. <laughs> if all goes, Eventually. What's that? Eventually. Well, eventually. I haven't had a goose for about 40 years, so the gentleman gave me two young ganders. Now, look, the other thing I was going to ask, I'm putting in some uh, pansy seed. My wife likes flowers. But if the seed go in now, won't they cop all the hot sun? Yeah, they they will, Robert. The best time to sow pansies is in late summer, early autumn, and right. then grow them through the winter, and then they flower in late winter and early spring. And that's that's how you see them sold in in your punnets, you know, your seedlings that are in flower at this time of year. So um, I'd if be you, going cosmos and all that sort of stuff. This absolutely, time of the year. sunflowers yes. and mm. yeah, yes. corn. Fl- well, no, they're another autumn sow, yes. aren't they? Yes. I, if the, I, I find you can get away with it a bit if you grow them in the shady part of the um, mm. garden. I, I like to grow one called the Jolly Joker. I find it's a beautiful pansy. Mm-hmm. Right. And Joker mix is another good... Uh, now, with eschalots, the little onions, can they be left in the ground or do they have to be pulled up and dried off? That's... They- they can be left in the ground, but, I mean, you're better off pulling them out and, and enjoying Eating your them. crop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they'll shoot. If, if you don't, I find if I mm. don't get them at the right time and hang them up, they can reshoot again. Yeah, that, that's right, Robert, and they'll be doing that now because the, the days are starting to get longer, yeah. um, and so they'll, the, plant, the bulbs will sense that and they'll start to shoot. So you, you probably miss them for this time of year, for yeah. this season, I reckon. What yeah. do you think, Millie? Yeah, I mean, I'm, onions are a tricky one, aren't they? Yeah, but very yeah, tricky. certainly very. once they start, I mean, you can still eat them as they're shooting, absolutely, you know, nice spring yeah. sort of stir fry um, um, as opposed to. Um, the chop, but uh, yeah, certainly timing is is of the essence, and and you know storage with with all of that tribe, um, yes. nice dark, cool, dry spot is is really important. So so they're still okay to be left in, just dig them up as you want them when they sort of dry yeah, off. Yeah, or or harvest the greens. I mean, I I do that often if I find there's a you know a wayward onion in the back of the cupboard that's starting to shoot, I just go and plunge it in the ground and then yes. and yes. just eat the tops, you know. Yes. So I'm not I'm not trying to grow onions. I think I'm I'm still a few goes off being good at onions. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, <laughs> they're uh, they're not the easiest. Very much. That's all right, Robert. Thanks. Bye bye. I was that was one thing I was thinking actually as I was driving in this morning about um, you know we're all so excited about planting vegetables, but we need to I, you know I feel like I need to and the garden I'm in at the moment we are completely overrun with aphids. I've never lived in a garden that is is as um, you know as you know completely overrun. And and the thing the only thing I can think to do is plant more flowers. You know, is let my let my coriander go to seed and try and get some hoverflies in, mm. and you know, and 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 that's 
sort of thing. So, you know, I guess when you're thinking about sowing all these vegetables, maybe one in three, you know, we, we talked about, no, we've talked about this, maybe one in five or what, what your ratio should be to put flowers in amongst those veggies, you know. I know it, certainly lettuce growers in, in the States put about 5% of their crop down to alyssum now. And, um, you know, mix about 5% through and it's like a, a true ratio and just have completely dropped their pesticide use yeah, right. by doing that very simple thing. That's so, so interesting, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Biodiversity is good in gardens. Yep. Okay. Well, I'm delighted to say that uh, online from Sydney we have Wendy Whiteley, who's creator of The Secret Garden and subject of a new book just released by Lantern titled Wendy Whiteley and The Secret Garden, written by Janet Hawley. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning. Now, I have to say, Wendy, what a glorious book. Every time I opened it to read more, I really felt transported into the garden myself. It's absolutely beautiful and very sensitively written by Janet Hawley, along with the most superb photographs by Jason Bush. And he's just really captured the play of light and shadow in the garden, giving it a a magical, almost an ethereal quality. You must be very proud of the book. I am very proud of it, and so should the writer Janet and the photographer and everybody else in, involved in it. They really, we really worked hard on it for a couple of years to get it right. Oh, I can, I can imagine. And just looking at the photographs, it looks like Jason's managed to capture, was it early morning or, or late afternoon sunshine in many cases? Oh, yes, he'd pop up, you know, it, all over the time scale of, uh, and seasons you know in the middle of so he's been through the seasons as well not that the seasons are quite as marked as they are in Europe in Sydney but I mean or probably in Melbourne but he'd come on good sunny days and on grey days and in the middle of winter in the middle of summer in the middle of spring mm. and photograph people doing things and talking to them and you know just getting every single mood and colour that was possible to get actually. It's a very well, you know, gardens change. Oh, they, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't control them. They do their own thing half the time. Exactly. And you've it, got to just be there to catch it at yes. the right moment. Yes. <laughs> no, he's captured it superbly. He has, and Janet's been writing about the garden for quite a few years actually, because she wrote um, some oh, good weekend cover articles and things like that years ago about mm. the garden. So she began this book with already quite a lot of knowledge about the garden and had seen it at different stages, you know, five, ten years ago as well. So yes, fantastic. many changes. Yep. Wendy, perhaps you could tell listeners, firstly, a little bit of the, the history of Lavender Bay because um, not many, well, no one looking at coming to Lavender Bay now would realise that originally there was a, a tidal beach there. Yes, that's right. And I think the book's great at, at showing all of that. We've given them... We've given a lot of uh, attention to the history of Lavender Bay, to the history of what was there before, because it's all the garden is all landfilling. You know, it was constructed by the railways to build the North Shore Line, the end to right to the end of the tip where Luna Park now stands. Used mm. to be Milsons Point Station, and this is all before, of course, the Harbour Bridge. So the shape of the bay was changed. Um, there were used to be two very famous swimming baths down in the harbour, and that, most of the harbour baths are now, of course, gone, but um, with wooden edges and a wooden platform going around, a wonderful old um, bathing, changing shed at the back and things like that, and they were still there when we, when we came here in the very, very end of 1969. Mm. Before, and if- before that, of course, there'd been convicts in the bay, and a lot of sandstone had been dug out, and 
then it was all filled in for the railway. So it changed radically. And, of course, that, that took away that, that whole beautiful swimming area from the general public. Well, it, it did take it away, yes. The railways, um, there was no access around the bay at all until about 15 years ago a boardwalk was built around the bay. But before that you couldn't, you had to go, uh, you know, up and down back to the streets, uh, much higher up and walk around the streets to get to either end of the bay. But now it's, um, you can come down, you know, you can come down into Lavender Bay and you can walk either from Luna Park around the boardwalk up the stairs to the garden or you can go the other way around. Mm. So you can... It's, it's got a much more, a much stronger sense of community and being open to the public now than it had before. Fantastic. The irony, of course, is that, that that railway has since closed and nobody bothered to clean up the area at all. What was left was just unbelievable rubbish, rubble, um, you know, every weed imaginable, lantana, um, vines climbing over everything. And, of course, then people thought it was a, a rubbish dump area as well. Well, I think when they originally built the line, it created a kind of walled garden effect for where where the garden actually exists. The railway line is actually still used by Rail Corp to take the trains into a kind of sleeping yard at night. And then they get cleaned up and go back onto the line, which in a way has probably protected it. But behind the line was this big hole in the ground, basically, and... Um, that's what people do with holes in the ground. They throw their rubbish in in cities. It's, yeah, yeah. You know, but it but it was ignored by the railways, and weeds grew over the top of the rubbish. And you know, twenty years ago, I thought, what a waste. You know, this so so little um, access to the actual harbour and and the view around the city anymore. That um, I turned it into a garden. I didn't ask them. I just did it, um, and they didn't stop me. So here we are, twenty years later hoping that the that um, the Premier is going to honour his commitment to come and have tea and have a look at the garden and think about whether we could just protect it, you know, from from being developed or, rub, you know, just stripped away again by by any body, any, any state body, and given to the people of New South Wales. Mm. Now, <clears throat> you, you really didn't... Um didn't start um, on this mammoth project until after Brett died and you seem to have had a, an overwhelming desire to bring some sort of order not only into your own life and your environment but to, by physically creating a secret garden it wasn't just a survival mechanism for you but it was a way of moving forward Oh yes, absolutely mm. I think, you know, gardeners know that it's, it's actually a very creative thing and when it's done on this scale to build this is a very life affirming thing i mean you have bad days in the garden obviously i just heard you a minute ago talking about aphids and you know, <laughs> things like that that come in they're, they're, you, you've got your enemies but you've got basically you're creating beauty out of nothing beauty and and usefulness and all kinds of good things out of something that wasn't there before and it's just a very life affirming thing to do absolutely and, and particularly after my daughter Archie died um you know, I just needed to keep going with it. I'd started it before, and she loved the idea, and had bought some bungalow palms to, you know, put into the centre of the first space. And she was very, very proud of the the fact that I was doing it, and loved it, loved the whole idea of it. And if she lived, she probably would have, you know, ended up living here herself, you know, mm, with mm. the children. However, uh, I, she, having lost both my husband and my daughter, um, you know, it seemed like something that I could do and something that I could share as 
you know, painters and, and writers and gardeners um, love to share what they do. Now, you started uh, in a very little way, um, merely by, by trying to clean up a small area under the Moreton Bay fig. Mm-hmm. And, of course, once you, once you got your fingers into the soil, you, you just kept going. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's, that's very much part of my nature, too. I hate to start something and not finish it, you know, and there was no, there was no final line except when we got right to the other end of the bay where you could say you could finish it, you know, it's just... We had to keep going and getting rid of the mess and the, and the jungle of weeds mm. and rubbish and things until we really got to the other end of the bay. So it, it turned into something which may have been a small adventure into a huge adventure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and it needed more and more help. So, yes. you know, after I'd fallen off the edge of this little, fortunately small rise cliff at the, in front of the house into the big green mess, I thought I need some help and started getting it. You know, I had my Corrado, my lovely Sicilian gardener has been with me for nearly 20 years and nearly from the beginning of my doing it so you know and then I've got two very strong and and aging but strong (laughs) full-time gardeners and a lot a lot of volunteers and a lot of um, part-timers that have come come and gone over the time that have all made huge contributions to the garden and all feel very involved and very proud of it and they've almost become part of your family haven't they Yes, they have. I yes. mean, the, the two permanent gardeners have. Yes, and I miss yes. the, uh, You know, I've had lovely girls that are studying to be um, landscape designers or something or other who've come and worked here. They've come and asked for a job and they've ended up, you know, nurturing and loving the garden and feeling very much part of helping um, create it. It's, it's a, it's, well, you know it. It's a lovely thing to do. It's just oh. a gorgeous thing to do. And, yes, they've become friends. And, of course, many of the visitors that come, some of them are local and so I see them. A lot, and a lot of people come from everywhere now. It's mm. on websites all over the world. There's a lovely bike tour man that brings people on push bikes across the bridge, and they come, and they come from everywhere all over the world, you know, Sweden and things, and they love it. Mm. It's a very unusual space for a city, so... Absolutely. You know, it's listed as a thing, and everyone's welcome, so that's a nice feeling. It's <laughs> gorgeous. Mm. Um I don't think listeners would quite realise the enormity of the task, but if you look back at some of those early photos, firstly, you, you realise just how steep the site is, incredibly yeah. steep, and you found just, just through working it that, that, firstly, I mean, I know you didn't want pathways in the beginning, but you found you just had to terrace and put in paths, and then, then you had half of it slide down after a heavy uh, rainstorm, so then you had to tackle drainage, and it's... It's just been the most mammoth effort to, to even get it to be able to establish plants there. Yeah, the first few years were really just establishing the site, but we planted as we went. So we more or less had to, and I'm, I'm sure people will understand, on a very steep site like that, you, you're standing kind of on the site and you're working from the top down. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. Uh, the top down, and um, you pull out a big clump of weeds and you go with it. Mm. And you end up at the bottom of the hill. <laughs> So we had to, we had to just sensibly start making pathways across, and then making pockets that you could immediately plant into, and that, that's what's actually holding it all together, because you know the very high side is is really sandstone, and thank goodness it's sandstone rubble, but it is sandstone rubble, and that you develop pockets of soil or soil that kind of developed over the years. It was about ninety years before we started on it, mm. so it had developed its own kind of 
oh, substructure, I suppose, but it, but held together by weeds and rubbish. And so you pull out a big bit of rubbish and then you're left with a hole. So you can... Pop something you, in to hold the can, soil. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Put in some soil and then pop something in it and the roots of the plant itself start mm. to be, hold it together. So it, it, it's got a kind of sense, you know, it's sensible in, in many ways. And, and we stuck to the actual structure that was there because there was no way we could get big machines and down, oh, no, down exactly. there and move things around. Paul Bangay came for a visit and he said, oh, you know, it's amazing that, that we managed to do it without any machinery and, and every big garden, a big landscaper knows that you can get the big machines in and actually structure the earth to suit your design. You're, you're halfway there. But this is very natural. Mm-hmm. It's a very natural feeling because we just had to stay with what was there and it's developed a very unique quality to the whole thing. Well, what you've actually ended up developing is is an incredibly fertile microclimate. So you're That's actually, right. you, 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 half of your concern now is, is actually in pruning to allow some light to come through. Well, we made this, you know, the mistake, of course, of putting um, little tiny plants too close together that are now big, big monster plants and they've kind of overgrown each other. So I've had to do a little bit of moving and I've certainly gotten very good at pruning in which I hesitated um, to do it first. I didn't want to touch a leaf, but I've now learnt that actually some things really love being pruned and I can shape things and I can save things from each other you mm. know, by pruning and pruning and just watching what's happening. A lot of them self-propagate, things I've put in, you know, and things I've grown from cuttings and things like that have all grown very happy, very healthy and sometimes very large. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the other wonderful thing about the garden is is um, that you've also created deliberately little quiet nooks for people. You've provided seats and tables. So the community has discovered the magic of the garden. There's, there's little places where they can sit if they just want to be alone or there's other areas where, you know, the children can come in as well and explore the garden. So it, it really is a garden for the community. Oh, it's very much so, yeah. And the community is a big community. It's not just the locals. It's everywhere from, you know, from all over the world. So it's, it is, but it does have that feeling of being a place where you can go and it can be your garden, you know, your your own private little garden for a while. So you can sit and have a lunch with your mates or your friends and you can bring a picnic. You can make an appointment with the council and get married. You can do all kinds of things. And, and children just love it. It's so refreshing to see children enjoying some, you know, the natural environment instead of demanding to be taken somewhere to be entertained by some kind of computerised game or something. They just love it, and they get so inventive and find fairies and all oh, kinds of things. Oh, it's fantastic! Yeah, yes. Um, you've now actually managed to collate a lot of documentary evidence from things like personal letters of thanks, from photos, from this book that's just been published. Um, the volunteer group. Um, all actually proving that the community love the space and want to use it constantly. What's happening in regard to actually moving the campaign forward so that the, the New South Wales government do actually declare it as, as public land? Well, most importantly, um, because of the book coming out and also because of the um, television Australian story, which was recently put on about the garden and the family, you know, um, the Premier, Mike Baird, has, has, has accepted very, very quickly accepted an invitation to come. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and have tea and have actually see the garden. I think once you see it, I mean, the book is magnificent and extraordinary, but to actually come here 
and see it um, to understand that it's it's not going to mess up um, you know anything the government wants to do. They did ignore it for a hundred years, so you know, <laughs> to, to actually hand it over to North Sydney Council and we'll get together a group that will look after it you know forever. I hope oh. know, take care of it and so that all the children that are running around now, their children will be able to come mm. to and people can share memories mm. you know, with each other of a, of a beautiful place on Sydney Harbour that you can come and just you know, take a moment for yourself. Absolutely brilliant. Fingers crossed, Wendy. Thank you. <laughs> now, um, look, I'd love to go on talking to you about it. There's so much we haven't even touched um, in the book, but I really urge listeners to grab hold of a copy of the book and to immerse themselves in the full story. Yes, and then come and visit. Absolutely. <laughs> so thank you for sharing a little bit about the garden um, and thank you for creating such a, an absolutely wonderful garden for the whole community. Thank you. Um, I really wish you every, every success in securing it um, for, for the public for all time and please do pass on um, huge congratulations to both Janet Hall and Jason Bush for documenting the journey. It's it's really beautiful. Yes, I'll do that. And you come and visit too. Oh, I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Wendy. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was uh, Wendy Whiteley. Uh, the book is entitled Wendy Whiteley and the Secret Garden. It's written by Janet Hawley. It's published by Lantern. Uh, recommended retail price is seventy nine ninety nine, but I'm sure this is going to be picked up in uh, by most of the libraries as well. If your local library hasn't got a copy yet, do go and, and request one because it is just an absolutely stunning book. She's truly uh, one of us. Well, she is Australia's uh, most courageous gorilla gardeners. Really, She's I mean, definitely she really a gorilla garden. Um, you know, that, I mean, that site is extraordinary. It's right, you know, uh, full view of Sydney Harbour Bridge. It's right on. On the bay, and you know, we're, we're seeing now the redevelopment of parts of Sydney Harbour. I mean, there's quite a controversial Barangaroo development that's happening, you know, which is a big commercial and um, and public space development. But this is a little part of Sydney Harbour, and and it was completely decrepit. I, you know, we we filmed Clarence filmed with Wendy a few years ago, and I had long conversations with her. And it it really was a, a, a wasteland, and mm. she just started, you know, dragging things out. And you know, we're talking about trying to get com- council support. She she's funded this you know she everything has, she's paid full-time gardeners for probably 15 years um to work in this space that is a completely public space that she's paid for all the plants she's brought in yeah. soil she's physically physically pulled some of the rubbish up because as she said they couldn't put in heavy machinery because it might have alerted the the government that, that they, they were, were there or not on their land bit of, bit of um you know this bit of land that was and, contaminated you know and i have to say Millie, it made me think of you because in 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 the process of cleaning up the site she's finished found the most fantastic bits of there's lots of great people stuff people would in call there. junk but treasures yeah some of which she's actually mounted as pieces in the garden mm. um just stunning it's it's beautiful and it you know it speaks volumes for the way an individual can just take responsibility for a bit of land. And, you know, she did this because she was interested. She did this because she was in this incredibly privileged position to do it. She did this because she was grieving the death of her husband and then and then, and then the death of her daughter. And, you know, it was this very transforming thing for her. But, um, you know, I, 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 
just recently was talking about how um, I loved the first time I travelled to, to Asia, seeing the way, when it was Thailand, the first place I went to on this big trip, seeing the way everyone took care of their front doorstep. And every front doorstep was swept to within an inch of its life. It had a water pot with a lotus in it. It had a euphorbia milii, Thai hybrid. And it was meticulously cared for in this nitty-gritty you know, I won't say the middle word cities, um, you know, that that care was taken. And I always kind of, you know, I look at people say, oh, renters, people don't care when they rent, you know, <laughs> I don't care I'm renting, I'm not going to take care of it. And it's like, you know, everyone everyone is, is only there for a period of time and, and to put that effort in I think is a remarkable thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Whether you own the land or not, you're only there for that period of time, you know, and, um, and yeah, so I just, I, I think Wendy's Garden is extraordinary mm. and, and um, it's such an asset. And I'm sure there are places like it in all around the country that we don't necessarily know about because we don't necessarily know about those people the way we know about Wendy and, and her mm. life story, I guess. Mm-hmm. And what a wonderful legacy for oh. her to leave. I mean, we all really want to leave something, don't we, mm. whether it's, you know, a lovely garden or a book or something like that. But, uh, yeah, for, for her, just incredible. Mm. Mm. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. If you'd like to uh, give us a call and make a comment or ask a gardening question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we have Millie Ross, we have Simon Rickard, A.B. Bishop in the studio. So do give us a call. The number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Derek on the outside line, 94198377. We'll go next to uh, Sharon, who's in Cheltenham. Good morning, Sharon. Uh, good morning. Yes. Um, I've got a question about freezers, which I feel I should know what to do, and I don't. So mm-hmm. I thought I'd ask you, uh, they've just finished flowering. Um, I wanted to pull up quite a few of them and put some at my son's, um, but I'm not sure when to do this. Well, um, ideally, Sharon, that the time to do it is in summer when they're dormant and dig up the dormant bulbs. But, of course, then you don't know where they are unless you've marked them. So you can lift them at this time of year and transplant them. But make sure you water them in and just give them a little bit of love for a couple of weeks. You know, it's not like when you when you transplant them when they're dormant, you can just throw them in a hole and forget about them. You'll need to give them a bit of water because at the time that they're flowering, they're also spending all of the energy from last year's that they stored last year in the bulb and they're beginning to make a new bulb to produce next year's flowers. So you can dig them now. Uh, You'll probably find they're quite deep down. You'll be surprised. So um, get a shovel to do it and uh, transplant them at the same depth they were growing in your garden and give them a good water and maybe again next week. Oh, look, thank you very much. That's all right. Good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. I want to talk about those seeds that Simon's brought in. I want all to talk about these duck, duck seeds. These big, big seeds. Yeah, right. Well, I brought in today, I, I, you know, um, plants aren't the only things in gardens. I mean, you mentioned not. artwork before, yes. um, Pam, and um, I have ducks in my garden. A lot of people have poultry in their garden. Right. And uh, it, it seems to me the world seems to divide into duck people and chook people, a bit like there are cat people and dog people, or, you know, Ford and Holden. And I'm a duck person. Okay. So I keep a, uh, a North American breed called a, a Cayuga which um, was the most uh, popular dual-purpose breed of duck, so that's one for laying eggs and for eating the meat, right. uh, in North America until Pekin ducks were introduced. Pekins are the great big white, yes. big white fat 
ducks from China. Um, a Cayugas are black, though. They're, they're glossy black all over, very Melbourne. Uh, and, in fact, the, the drakes are shiny green over their whole bodies, like a, a, like a wild mallard duck's shiny green head, but the, the drakes are like that over their entire body, and the females are, are black. And they also lay black eggs. Uh, well, they, they can lay green eggs as well. So I've brought in um, half a dozen eggs here, and half of them are green, and half of them are uh, this beautiful sort of slaty black Road base colour. Amazing <laughs> colours. I it's thought you amazing. must have brought in 100 year old eggs when I, I saw the colour. They're yeah, prehistoric no, no. looking, aren't no, they? No, laid this they morning. Are. <laughs> Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're pretty amazing looking eggs. So, yeah, I, I have ducks in my backyard. Unfortunately, I don't have any fences, so I can't let them run completely wild. But they, they have a big area that's um, uh, fenced off and uh, with my compost heap in there. And they have a little um, plastic pond that they can swim in. Um, ducks are really messy creatures. They, oh, they yes. will turn water into mud in seconds, you know, and there's nothing they like more. So what my ducks will do, I'll, I'll give them a fresh pond of water. Within 10 minutes, it's mud and there's mud everywhere. And then they'll start quacking their heads off to demand that I give them more water. <laughs> you know, our water's run out, you know, um, so I have to go and give them more water. So they, they, they can survive with just a bucket of water as long as they've got enough water depth to clear their nostrils of mud because they, they're dabblers. They yes. feed by dabbling around in the mud. So they need to be able to – and it's really funny watching them do it. They stick their heads in the water and they snort to clear their, <laughs> their nostrils. So as long as they have enough water to do that, you, you can keep ducks in even quite a small area. And they're a lot easier on the garden than, than chooks because they don't scratch – um, don't they around. eat all your lettuce? This is what I've heard. They, I they, mean, chickens will eat everything, so yeah, yeah, yeah. don't get me wrong. Exactly. Because I'm holding dog chicken at yeah, this yeah, time, yeah, but I'm yeah. happy to move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, no, I, they're, they're much easier on the garden than, than chooks for sure. But it, it's really interesting. They've, they've got such different personalities to chooks as well. You know, if you, if you put chooks are very inquisitive if you put something new in their in their pen or the area where they're allowed to go, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll all come over and have a look and explore it and see if it's edible and. Ducks, if you put something new in their enclosure, they'll all run a mile. They don't like having their feng shui changed. So if you you know, you know put their water bucket in a different spot, they won't go near it for half an hour. They'll all cower in a corner and think, God, something's different. What do I do? So they, they have such different personalities mm. to chooks. I've heard um, – I've seen a couple of people run like duckwaponics systems where they flush that water out into a grow bed and um, and actually, you know, utilise that nutrients um, and, yeah, and the duck water. Because, I mean, I guess a lot of water – you could use quite a lot of water keeping ducks if you didn't have a good system you need to yep. how do, what do you do do you just sort of run it out into I well the the, the the buckets that they have go to different bits of the different fruit trees or different bits of the garden every day um, and the the pond just gets upended um, just uh, on the quince trees and on the pear trees that are in that same sort of area so you physically are just upending upending. it yeah 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 I'd it's be tempted 10. to have a little automated sort of, you know, system yeah. where you stand at the hose and you turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not organised enough for yeah. that. But it's nice to be able, as I say, they, they mud because what they do is they'll hop in their little pond and then they put their heads over the edge and dig holes. They excavate. And so if you leave their pond in the same place for too long, it, it just turns, gets muddier. And like, <laughs> like a quarry sort goes of. Goes through to China yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's why I like to move them around. Great. We should go to Val in Vermont. Good morning, Val. Good morning, uh, panel. I was wondering, um, what do you do for leaf curl? 
Mm, nothing at the moment. <laughs> too late, Val, too late, she cried. Yes, you've missed it this year. Do you know, I, I think, Val, that mostly, in my experience, if you have a severely affected tree, it'll actually abort those leaves. And if your tree is healthy enough in general, it'll it'll flush out new growth. So, um, you know, if you, if you do want to try and prevent it, it's a fungal infection, you need to spray uh, a fungicide in the dead of winter, not at budburst, as we used to say. You mm-hmm. want, to, want to do it well before then. Um, clean up around the tree, um, you know, fresh mulch so you've got no spores bouncing back up into the the foliage. But, look, I would um, – the only thing I'd do for your tree now is maybe a bit of liquid seaweed and good regular feed and, and you should still get a really You'll good crop. You'll get fruit, yeah. yes. Look, I mean, the tree tree does sense that there's something wrong with those leaves usually mm-hmm. and just drops them and, and actually flushes out good, healthy growth. So, um, Well, there are, they're Fleming's little ones, you know. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. So they're in pots um, – What's I going to say? Uh, I'd be liquid feeding, you know, every every few weeks, Val, as they're coming on, um, nice and consistent with the moisture and the and the water to, to keep them um, to to try and produce a fruit, you know, crop in in a pot is tricky. Um, you need to be quite consistent, um, but uh, just keep the tree as healthy as possible. Now, if you uh, when you say. Uh Liquid feed them. Do you, what were you talking about? What sort of feed? Like I'd just go like a nice weak liquid fish emulsion with um with a you know a bit of seaweed sloshed in there or whatever you can find really. Bit oh, of right. liquid compost, bit of wormweed. Um, scattergun approach is mine. Just whatever you can put your hands on, and that's diversity. So. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, all right. Oh, well, I'll do that. that. That's Millie, is it? It is, Val. How are you? Good, thank you. <laughs> um, Good to hear your yeah. voice. Yeah, so, all right, well, I'll try that and see how it goes. But you think I might get fruit anyway? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. You will. It doesn't affect the flowers. It's a, it's a fungal disease that attacks the leaves, so... Um, oh, if right. you keep them keep them nice and healthy, they're really good little plants. The um, the little dwarf peach is one of the best best plants. And I think I've said once before on air that you, uh, a couple of years ago, um, after the Sydney bushfires, so it would be maybe three three years ago when there was the bushfires in October, we went to visit this fantastic gardener. Um, who had built her own place. We couldn't ring her directly. We had to ring her next-door neighbour and then they would go down and she would ring us because she didn't have a phone, didn't have any power. Um, and she had, she'd built her house and her garden and uh, everything was – all of the arbours and things were about three centimetres taller than she was. So, you know, you sort of get your head. But the extra, most extraordinary thing about that garden um, was that she had grown about 20 dwarf peaches from the seeds from one of these these dwarf trees and she had a row of fruiting dwarves um, that flowered both white and pink, uh, but they all produced fruit. Oh. So, yeah, there you go. Fleming's all roses from- on the, in the car to come and throttle me as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> say from the seed, do you mean the big seed or does she have to break that open? Uh, I think she would have broken it open but um, yeah, certainly just from the pips of one of the she had one dwarf tree and they were probably 10 or 15 years old, these trees at this point and and she had a whole hedge of them and just it it was one of those things I never forget, you know, when you see something that you don't believe is true but uh, certainly was. All right then, well thank you panel. Okay, Thanks Thanks, Val. See you later. Bye. Yeah, Bye. it's always worth it. You know, in the old days when you had a bit more space and she had, you know, a few acres there, you know, you can sort of experiment with a row of peach trees yep. you've grown from pips and, and mm. see what happens. Well, peaches have got a really high um, success rate from growing from seed. You know, unlike apples and pears where one in a thousand is edible, um, peaches is pretty much one in one, you know. So you, you can put put in a peach stone and it will – and better to leave the, that, that hard outer layer on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you'll – usually get something edible. 
But you wouldn't think uh, with the dwarf trees, because you think, you know, they're on dwarfing rootstock, so you wouldn't think that... Well, no, in in the case of the dwarf peaches, it's a genetic dwarf. So the top growth of the tree is dwarfed, Um, unlike uh, when you get a dwarf apple, which is a normal apple tree on a dwarf dwarf rootstock. So it's the opposite with the dwarf peaches and dwarf nectarines. It's a a dwarf upper part and a normal rootstock. Fantastic. And so the the, the outer coat, because it's the same with macadamias, you've got to leave that hard bit on to, to... There's an enzyme in there, basically, that is involved in that germination. That's right. Do you soak? You'd soak the whole. Um, I no, I would just stick it in the ground. I mean, yeah, I would just stick it straight in the ground as it is. Some some plants definitely benefit from being soaked in water. Things like corn and beans and beetroot. Um, some of them need uh, even more interesting treatment, like capers. If you want to grow capers from. Um, uh, from seed, you, you need to treat them with um, um, weak acid to imitate going through the stomach of a bird. Like lemon juice? Uh, yeah, something like that would work. Yep. Um, or And some plants, like a lot of Australian natives and South African plants, need bushfire to, to germinate. Mm. So they need to be exposed to, to smoke water you can buy. You can actually buy liquid smoke. To... I know, it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it's so much more convenient than setting your property on fire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, you can... Just to do the whole polyhouse, just yeah. <laughs> one tray of something. When, when I was at the Diggers Club, we used to propagate um, some of these plants that needed smoke by sowing them in a seed tray, a seed flap, which is a, you know about the, the, the size of this book in front of us, and um, we would pile up uh, sawdust on the top and just set the sawdust mm. on fire. And then water it to, to put <laughs> it out. And then water yeah. it in, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can do the same just with some twigs and sticks, you yep. know. Plastic tray, you've got to be a bit cautious of, uh, of where you put the fire. But it, can, it is that simple, it can be that rudimentary, yep. can't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Okay, let's go to Hugh in the Yarra Valley. Good morning, Hugh. Oh, good morning, panel. Good morning, everybody there. Uh, Pam, you were good enough to us to talk about Anos, which is the orchid show at the um, Mount Waverley Railway Station. But there is, uh, and, and I've been there yesterday, and it was just absolutely stunning. Oh, really good. Really stunning. And um, but nearby, not far away from Mount Waverley uh, and Enos, is the Marunda Orchid Society, which is a huge orchid society, and they had a fantastic uh, display and um, beautiful plants for sale and, and, and on display. And I thought anybody who wants to go and see orchids, there are these shows very close together. And Marunda Orchid Society is at um, in Canterbury Road, near the Brentford Square Shopping Centre. Brentford, B for Brentford with a B like bum. Yes. Brentford Square Shopping Centre, it is on the Melway 62G3. I'm not a member there, by the way, but I'm just so fascinated by the work they did. And they also have little plans for, for kids, uh, uh, children, should they come, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. It is in Stevens, um, Stevenson, oh, gosh, you know, um, uh, Stevens Road, I got it right, Stevens Road, and the actual place is called St. Timothy's Catholic Primary School, and it is behind the Brentford Square Shopping Centre, very easy to find, and you will not regretted to have gone there and talking of orchids and this there is another one which is the next weekend actually which is the ringwood one which is also worthwhile unfortunately i lost my flyer but it is the next traffic light um 
before or after Auburn Road, whichever way you're coming, at the um, Croydon um, Secondary College, I think it is called. I've I've actually got the address here, Hugh. It's actually in the Melbourne College Hall, which is in Brentnell Road in Croydon. Yes, uh, look, I I lost the flyer, Um, Pam. I'm sorry to say I'm a naughty boy. I agree, I agree. No problems. You know, but um, it was really um, enormous, some of the plans. I thought I have seen all there is to see in orchids, but, oh, gosh, they had some more. And um, for Victoria, I wish you a lovely weekend and have a nice day. And spring is definitely on the way. Definitely. Okay. Thank Thanks you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. We are running through until 9.15. If you'd like to jump on the phone and give us a call, 94190155, or to speak to Derek on the outside line, 94198377. We have Millie Ross, Simon Rickard, and AB Bishop in the studio, so we'd love to hear from you, 94190155. I can see some euphorbias there, yeah, I, Simon. I, well, I, I bring euphorbias in every year at this time of year, so no surprises there. I, I actually looked at one this morning and thought, I should take that in. <laughs> Great minds think alike. Well, they've got particular poignancy and relevance for me this morning, though, Pam, because um, I... I for those of you in the studio, which is not most of the people listening, I'm actually covered in red spots. I've got red spots all over my scalp and my face at the moment because I'm having some um, uh, um, skin cancers burnt off, some all right. um, actinic keratoses. Well, they're not they're not cancers. They're sunspots, which can yes. be precancerous. But anyway, yes. I'm having these actinic keratoses burnt off my face and my scalp because I've got the scalp of a 90-year-old man, even though I'm half that age. Hats on, gardeners. <laughs> yeah, Hats on. exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting, though, because my, 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 my doctor said, because I said, I'm just neurotic about, you know, putting sun... I'm very bald, so I put sun cream on my scalp and wearing a hat and stuff. And he said, well, this probably all happened when you were five years exactly, old. Exactly, you know, Back wow. in 1976. Yep. So... I'm in trouble too. Yeah, you're in big trouble. Grew up on the beaches in Perth. <laughs> hey, we all <laughs> are. Right, exactly. Um, but anyway, so the, the, it's re- it's interesting though, because the um, the medicine that they use to... That I have to apply to these sunspots to burn them off um, comes in a tube that's about an inch long. Yes. Which costs 50 bucks. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's a chemical called ingenol mebutate. And um, my doctor was saying, oh, they make it out of radium weed. And, of course, being a gardener, that piqued my interest. Of I said, course. Oh, what's radium weed? I don't know what that is. So he hopped on Google. Isn't the internet wonderful? And it turns out that radium weed is um, petty spurge, which mm. is a, a weed that all gardeners would know. Um, and probably all have right about now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I picked these under my back doorstep. Um, mm. Euphorbia pepless. I'm, I'm holding them up now. You'd know it straight away if you saw it. It's got little lime green sort of lacy flowers. And it's a pain in the neck. It pops mm. up everywhere. So that's Euphorbia pepless. And from that, um, from the old time habit of using that to burn off warts and skin cancers and stuff they've they've now synthesized the the, the chemical in that plant that that does that mm. and they can put it in a tube and sell it to 50 bucks did you look at him and go can i just go and rub my euphorbia? <laughs> i grow about 12 species of euphorbia can i just do that i didn't I, I didn't even need to say that to him he already had me pegged and he said before you go and dig up <laughs> before you 
start home remedying. Exactly, that's right. He said this, this has been through all the, you know, clinical trials and so forth, and they've taken all the chemical. Because, I mean, the other thing about, and I do have a reaction to euphorbias, because when a I cut them back, do. every year yes. I get big, I get um, welts on my mm. forearms, yes. even if I've got long sleeves on. Um, and it's quite gummy. The, 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 the sap in the euphorbias is, is gummy and caustic, so it sticks mm. to you for ages. So the, the nice thing about the medicine is that it, it goes on as a nice clear gel and it only has the chemical you need in it. So. I did. Uh, I, I used to get away with it until one time where we were cutting back a whole lot of Mercenetes, so the yeah. beautiful little ground cover form. And I was, I, I forgot my gloves and I was covered in sap. I was fine. I was but I just touched oh. my yep. somewhere on my face yeah. in that sort of T zone. I just gently touched myself at some point on the face, and that night it wasn't for quite a few hours oh. later. It inflamed, and yeah. it was it was quite it was quite an overwhelming experience. Actually, I thought here I'm going to hideously disfigure myself with uh, <laughs> one of my favourite plants. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but mm. they're an extraordinary thing, aren't they? I mean, that sap that we all avoid, the fact that it is so yep. uh, useful and medicinal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and. Look, I mean, I, I've just brought in a big bundle of, apart from the little weedy ones, the little petty spurge, I brought in a bundle of of, um, of euphorbias, ornamental ones that grow in my front yard, um, which at this time of year is pretty much euphorbia land. It is. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I've, that. I've got uh, euphorbia rigida, which is the, the biggest sibling of euphorbia mercenides that, that Millie just mentioned. Yeah, really good plant. I mean, it's got acid green flowers like most of the genus. Um, and it grows about oh calf high. It's it's a it's a ground cover, I guess you call it. But even when it's not in flower, it's got these beautiful green um, leaves uh, which are arranged around the stems in a, in a spiral. So it's got quite a geometric quality to it. Um, it almost the the leaf stems look a bit like um, uh, bunya pine, except grey. They're very um, robust. It's almost like a succulent style yeah. sort of look, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it works in really not well shrubby, with like more sort of architectural than yeah. some of the others. Yep, yeah, definitely. It, it Blends really well with grasses to, to soften those harder lines, but also harder things than it, like um, you know, proper mm. succulents and cacti. And in fact, some I noticed Pam, you're wearing a, a t-shirt. Got to be from Madagascar, is it? Yes. <laughs> well, there are some fantastic euphorbias in Madagascar that, oh, yes. that have evolved um, parallel in par- parallel evolution with um, cacti in the Americas. But these these Madagascan euphorbias look exactly like cacti. Mm. So some of them are small and blob shaped. Other ones are great big tall tree shaped cacti. Mm. They're not even a bit related to cacti, but because they've been under the same evolutionary pressures, the same kind of climate as what they get in the desert in America. They're quite extraordinary. That was the the, 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 um, the euphorbia that I was going to bring in was one. I think it's uh, Caput Medusae, which Medusa's head, which is a really great little succulent, sprawling thing. And it's flowering for the first time in, in two years. So it didn't mm-hmm. flower last year, but this year it's flowering on the point of last year's growth and on its terminals, which I thought was quite interesting in yeah. its habit. But that's a real succulent form. And, yep. and I know in, in Burma when I was around the temples of Bagan, I photographed a, a euphorbia there that was like had a beautiful brown flower, you know, really u- ugly, yeah. but really gorgeous in the same way. That was a cacti form as well. It was yep. it was it was a towering sort of upright uh, cactus, and you and just sort of there think, are tropic just, ones from the wet tropics as well. I mean, poinsettia is a kind of euphorbia mm. with a lovely red bracts around the flowers. And uh, the one I'd love to grow is uh, euphorbia cotta. Uh, what's it called? Um, a cottonifolia, like because like it looks a, like a cottonus. It's got purple round leaves. There. You see it quite a lot, a lot up in Brizzy and places like that. Yes. But no chance in the subalpine no. zone. But what a yeah, great group of plants to explore yep. and not rubbing your eye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you've never been careful as a gardener, you'll learn from that one. Yes, yeah, you will. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. 
Okay, let's go to Sue, who's in Mount Waverley. Good morning, Sue. Oh, good morning, everyone. Um, I have a, a problem with uh, um, an issue with a white magnolia. It's probably six to um, eight metres high. It's been established for quite some time. Um, on Both my husband and I assumed that it, it, things were going well until the um, blooms came out and we could see that the top portion probably... I would have to say at least half of the tree has absolutely been um, eaten by possums. Oh, poor and not, un, not uncommon, I'm I afraid. Know, they do I love... Know, really. mm. I could just cry. So, uh, I, so people have a million strategies for beating possums and, and I guess it depends a little bit on what type of possum it is, whether it's the brushies that kind of are big bombastic things or the little ringies that it's, nibble the tips off. Um, but look, one of the most effective things that uh, I've heard people saying with their magnolias is actually to light the tree. Um, so particularly at this time when they're really vulnerable, when the buds are on, to, to actually you know put some uplights underneath the tree because the okay. possums are less likely to want to hang around in a tree that is really well lit. Okay. Um, so that's pretty low impact for um, any other um, you know for any other wildlife. It, okay. It's you know it's upsetting more than dangerous for the possums. Um, can I can I can we actually um, trim it back slightly? Uh, if, just, if it helps access yeah. to the tree, that's that's your big thing. It's it's access. It's how are the possums actually getting into the tree? And if mm. there's any way of actually preventing them from jumping across from a fence line or from another tree, you've mm. you've solved half your problem. Okay. Yeah, so definitely removing a limb that seems to be against a fence or something like that, that would be worth looking for. But, um, yeah, certainly they're very popular. I mean, I think if I was a possum, I'd like magnolia buds too. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be straight into them. But, uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's not an uncommon one, but it is, it's good to change it because if they they keep eating at those tips, you're going to, you're going to find that um, over time that the, the, the plant really struggles to grow, you know, a, a exactly, decent framework. Is, yeah. yeah. Um, and if I did, if we did just trim it back, well, just even just tip prune and get it away from the fence line. Mm. Um, Just some um, diluted worm juice or something like that to give it a little bit, or it doesn't need to be fed. The soil is excellent. Just your general general care, good organic fertiliser coming into okay. to spring yeah. is a good idea. And, Bit you know, of liquid seaweed, never moisture. goes a heart. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And Sue, so just um, be, be as circumspect as you can with your pruning because magnolias don't heal from big pruning cuts very well. I do appreciate that. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Perhaps that, no, I won't say. No, I was going to say the secretaries might slip, you know. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> don't say it. No, I won't. Not the little ring. Thank ringies. you so much. Good okay. luck. Bye-bye. Bye. Do you know, living in a part of Melbourne that um, 10 years ago we had no possums to having lots of ringtails, there's something that I feel, you know, I, it makes, I know they're a pain and I know that um, possums do a lot of damage, but it is a nice thing to suddenly see a suburb start to come alive again, you know, mm. and start to have um, some wildlife in it. So, mm. yeah. I have to say that um, I've got a lot of ringtails in my garden. I don't have any brushies. Mm. And really, the ringtails don't do much damage. No, I agree. I can live with them quite happily. Mm. It's only the brushies and, and crossing my fingers. They haven't come yet. Yeah, but yeah. 
Yeah. I'm not sure if there's, you know, if one population's there, it's unlikely for the other to be as many. I don't there, know. But, um, no, I think the ringies are pretty gorgeous too. They oh, do do lovely. They do a lot of tip damage, which is, mm. you know, over, you know, they get right out to the edges mm, of the branches so and, and, and eat, yeah, yeah, eat the delicious tips, which, but, are, least, which I mean, are the Just taking, but, just doing the tip pruning, it doesn't kill the, the tree the, or the plant. General, you know? Unless they crop it, you know, yeah. night after night after night after yeah. night. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I've never had that problem. It's cute so. the way they twitter like birds, not like the brush yes. tail possum. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. So like someone's being murdered, <laughs> or a donkey's being murdered. <laughs> donkey's murdering. <laughs> okay, let's go to Betty in Ashwood. Good morning, Betty. Oh, good morning, panel. Uh, I'm ringing about my crepe myrtle. I think I've missed the boat. I, I, I would be too late to trim it now, wouldn't it? No, 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 Betty. You can you can still prune them now. They're quite late in leafing out. And has yours leafed out yet? No. No. Well, no, you... it's just got the dead flowers. Yeah, from last year. Yeah, no, no, you can still prune your crepe myrtle now. And um, unlike the magnolia, pruning uh, crepe myrtles do, you can prune them very hard. You can pollard them. So you can oh, actually. even now? Yeah, even now. You can cut it back as hard as It'll you like. Grow, I'll get flower. When do You'll they flower? You'll get a big burst of growth. They flower on the, on the growth produced in the current season. So you can prune them back hard every year if you want to, and you'll Jeez. still get flowers. Unlike something that flowers on previous year's growth, like uh, wisteria comes to mind. People oh, yeah. always prune the flowers That's off. By now, mistake. Beautiful. Yeah. So go for it. Go crazy, Betty. Oh, okay. And I'll still get flowers at the end. Mm. If we get in a hot enough summer, you will. And oh. we're 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 in the we're on the way for that. We're going to have a hot summer. Yes. I think yeah. we are. Oh, thank you very much. Okay. Good luck. Bye. Next up, we have uh, Ken, who's out in sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, everybody. Look, I, I rang up to give Millie. Although everyone and gardening gardening program is is welcome when we have our park celebration and um, we invite Millie because she's a young lady from the western suburbs and a gardener as a special invitation to her Ah. when we have our barbecue to celebrate our win from the council. So when's that happening Ken? I'm not quite sure. I used to to be um, president of the group for 40 years and these young people have come in the area and I just changed it over to them and they're fantastic. Great. And I, I'm a rank and filer now. <laughs> the main so, thing is you all achieved the outcome you did. Well, it was just wonderful. And there's two, there's two other parks. Uh, one was in Dandenong and that was one. So we've set a precedent that uh, I don't think they'll be able to sell parks anywhere now. Mm. So all keep your eye out. But Millie, we'd love and we'd love everyone in the gardening program to... To come along if you can. I'm not quite sure when it is, but you'll all get emailed and. Um... Great, Ken. It's exciting to, you know, I know councils struggle to find land to, to turn back into parks, so when you've got a bit of space, you've got to hang on to it. Absolutely. Well, it was so ridiculous and so, so um, revolting with um, a Turak council buying four houses and costing 20 million to extend a park. Mm. So it's not, if you come from good old West Sunny. <laughs> yeah. You You're might get some tips from you? Wendy Whiteley. <laughs> well, when you stand up to your right, so see how good we are. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Ken. Bye. Thanks, Ken. There's some um, great work being done through the city of Yarra too where they're actually identifying disused roads and off-ramps and all sorts of things to turn into parks. Because yes. they're like, we can't afford to buy it. This land is worth more than anything, but we can we can identify where land is not being used well and we can actually convert that back to mm. park. So, mm. Before we go to our next caller, um, this is one for you, Simon, mm. a query from the outside line, garlic rust. 
What can be done? I have no idea. Eat really? It. I'd just eat it. <laughs> <laughs> just eat it young. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm afraid yeah. I have no idea. It's pretty common. I mean, if it, once it's into the plants, I don't think that there's, you know, there's virus and, and rust problems that you get in garlics. I think once mm. once you've got them, you've got them. Mm. Um, if it's if it's not spread through your entire, all the different varieties, I might be tempted to whip out the ones that are affected. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got a few different varieties there. Um, Penny would be the one to, mm. no doubt, you should be know. running for the phone right now. She's not at a garden show somewhere. But um, yeah, look, I I would say you can always eat the rust and pulling up young garlic and um, braising it with some... It's a treat eating it at this time. Yeah. So um, nothing wrong with eating it if you're going to whip it out. We might might run that query past Penny next time she's in on the program. Okay. Let's go to Jill and East Malvern. Good morning, Jill. Hi, Pam. Um, I've been planting uh, salvia involucrata bacilli around the fence lines and the possums eat the leaves during the winter and of course the beautiful pink flowers are there for the birds so and I've planted my roses next to the house but they don't touch the eaves so I haven't had any uh, disasters from possums on my rose buds and um, the only thing that the possums ate was the red flowering um, broad bean seedlings I put in. Mm. Delicious. And that was silly, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I should have put them next to the brick wall. Yeah. It's really interesting, Jill. You know, if you look at the websites of American nurseries, a lot of American gardeners have problems with deer coming into their gardens and eating their plants. And so most uh, American nursery websites will list plants that are deer-proof. You know, they'll have a little symbol showing you that deer won't touch them. And I think we really need that in Australia Mm. with possums because we get so many questions about what do I do about possums? And really the easiest thing you can do can do is to plant possum-proof plants. Well, um, I actually wrote an article recently based on um, a website in England called My Garden School, oh, yeah. which is fantastic, and um, it gave a list of slug-proof plants, oh, great. which mm. was fantastic because I, well, I used a lot of the ideas, but then I had, um, I put in all the most prone, you know, which are hosta, and of course mm. angels' trumpet leaves. Mm. Um, were looking gorgeous, and the snails came, and I had laced the leaves. <laughs> you know, you look up... A lacy leaves, leaves, yeah, full of holes. New cultivar. All, of, <laughs> all the holes, and you can see the sky through them. Mm. It is the universal, and, I, I, you know, I remember years ago interviewing Kate Hurd when she wrote her book about kitchen gardens around Australia and um, down at the Aries Inlet Writers Festival, and, and I said, you know, she went, she did some really city patches, she went all around Australia, she did some, you know, vast country patches, mm. and she said that the one commonality was critters, like mm. it didn't, you know, it might be cockatoos if you're up in the bush, or yeah, as I know you, uh, you've been having trouble mm. with Simon, or Talking it's little nuts. possums here, or mm. it's rats sometimes, mm. you know, you, you come out and they've eaten everything to the ground, mm. and we're all doing battle a little bit with our crops because we are cultivating mm. great, luscious. I, I, Edible roses, crops. The roses have um, aphids on them now, so I go out and just with a, a spray um, of the hose water, nothing else, um, and then I squash them and um, rinse that my fingers off and rinse the um, little bugs, and um, that does the trick. You know, yeah. and you just have to do that as sort of every second day when the roses are in mm. in bud. Yeah, it's a great way to deal with them, Jill. Because get it off the very 
new buds, then you have distorted rose petals, of mm. course. Yeah, and once mm. the roses have had a chance to harden up a bit, then, of course, um, you've broken that cycle with the aphids and they're not mm. as interested. That's mm. right. Mm. Anyway, and the, I suppose you... one could buy some ladybirds. That would be another way of uh, attacking the, the um, pests. You can. You can buy biological controls in the post now. You can get a mail order. But, you know, if you've only got a couple of um, roses like you have, Jill, then you, you may as well do it by hand. Yeah. Grow more yes. flowers. You know, some schools of thought even say you shouldn't squish the aphids with your with well, your fingers now because you'll squish the predators as well. Mm. I've got 15 roses, but my brother used to have 400 when he lived in Jura. Oh, gosh. gosh. That's mm. exciting. Uh, Eremophilas and roses did beautifully in Mildura, along with, of course, avocados. And, yes. Mm. And, uh, Covet. Oranges and lemons and limes, yeah. Oh, well, my garden's looking absolutely fantastic now. Good for you, Jill. And I'm trying to um, make it interesting for children, you know, with little nooks and they go into corners and, yeah, grandchildren. Excellent. Grandchildren garden is my next move. Yep. Okay. More strength to your arm, Jill. Bye. Bye. Actually, interesting, um, Jill's talking about aphids. Um, aphids at this time of year reproduce by parthenogenesis, which means virgin birth. And so the female aphids can clone themselves. They just give birth to their to little baby clones of themselves. And the interesting thing is that when when they have their own daughters inside them, their daughters are already pregnant with their granddaughters. So oh. they've got three. They're like these Russian, you know, the Russian dolls, the matryoshka dolls, sort of aphids within aphids within aphids. And so that's why their their populations can just explode so quickly at this time of year. And I think we should think ourselves lucky that possums don't do the same. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got another possum query. Uh, this time we're going to Ali in Armadale. Good morning, Ali. Oh, good morning. Uh, more on the possums. Um, we only have um, ringtails here, um, but I would have to disagree about how much damage they do. Um, my neighbours had a huge avocado tree which bore a lot of fruit and they killed that. Oh, dear. Um, I lost um, a golden robinia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've lost seven climbing roses mm. um, on my uh, trellises around the mm. property. That's just to name a few. Gosh, and that's from the little ringtails, is yep. it? Mm. Yep. Oh. yep. You must and have lots. Beg your pardon? You must have lots. Mm. Yes, I yeah. think we do. And it's that um, persistent just tapping away, I think, night after night at the new growth mm. if the plant can't Pop, actually popping. do what it needs to do. Mm. No, well, it was mm. very interesting with the avocado because mm. they started on the leaves... Uh, and, you know, being an evergreen, um, it desperately tried to uh, develop new leaves and they'd eat those shoots. They ended up eating the bark. Mm, um, gosh. And, um, you know, it was so sad because it was a huge tree hmm. and it, it bore a lot of, lot of fruit. But, I mean, uh, they do develop tastes in different gardens, though. Uh, my neighbour uh, loses a lot of camellias uh, from them. Whereas mine, they just tend to, um, you know, nibble at the uh, the top leaves and, and don't really do a lot of damage. But I think it depends on the individual possum. Mm. Yes. Mm. They have their own dietary requirements. Well, <laughs> I guess like people really do. Yeah, paleo possum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gluten intolerant. <laughs> they, they vegan ones eating the for avocados. For a particular thing. But um, yeah. the other awful thing they do on my property is they get inside the... Um, you know, the barrel of the roller door. Oh, yeah. Ooh. And they take in half the forest with them. Oh, oh goodness. 
and and you can't get it out. <laughs> and um, I was having trouble with the with the roller door one day, and I rang uh, the guy to come and have a look at it, and there was a dead possum inside. Yeah. Oh, he dear. couldn't get the dead body out. Right. Mm. So it just had to stay there until it was ground to nothing. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and and all the all the you know the nest garbage stays in there with them. It's a real problem. Mm. Oh dear. So they're not my friends. Okay, <laughs> fair enough, Ali. <laughs> Thanks, Ali. Okay, thank Bye. you. Bye. And next we have Val in Hampton. Good morning, Val. Good morning. Uh, could I speak <clears throat> about a stephanotis that I have? Right. Please? Go ahead. It's uh, it's in an eight or ten inch ceramic pot, and it needs TLC because the ends are starting to die off about five inches of some of the. Uh, you know, bits of it. And so I just want to know what does it require? Um, eight or ten inch pot sounds like it might be in a pot that's a bit small for, for really keeping it um, happy. So they're pretty tough plants, the Stephanotis, once once they're established happy in quite a warm spot, aren't they? But um, Well, it's been there for some time. Yeah, but that sounds, if it's dying back, um, I you know, you always look straight away to drainage, making sure that the pot's draining really well. Also um, water. And, yeah, so also water related. But, you know, it might be time to pot it on into mm. a larger size pot to allow for some new growth. And I wouldn't be afraid to sort of give it a light prune either to try and stimulate some nice healthy new growth. Yes, it needs some certainly some assistance, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. But what it, do they like to do they like anything extra? Not that I'm aware of. They they like a nice hot spot though, that's mm. the only thing. Yeah, nice warm, plenty of moisture yeah, I guess, it's, but it's well against, drained. It's mm. against a, a fence facing north, so mm. that if there is any warmth it's uh, Mm. It'll have some warmth. It's, I've always had flowers, but I just think it's uh, time that something happened to it. Well, Val, I, I, I agree with Millie. I think it sounds like it's been in its pot too long. And what can happen over time is that potting mix breaks down and mm. all the fine particles go to the bottom of the pot. They stop your drainage being good. And so it could actually have some kind of... The, the tips of the roots could be rotting because they're too wet and then, then the tips we're, of your vines... We're, will... we're sand... We're sand <clears throat> it's in sandies. <clears throat> sandy sort of a, a area, so uh, should it go into the ground? Oh, well, you can give if it a that's go. that's an option, yeah, definitely. Good amount of, you know, good compost, some well-rotted cow manure or something, and, and, and in, and I think you'll find they're, they're really easy plants. Once they're established, they're a you know, fantastic evergreen climber yes. and, and flowers yeah. to knock your, knock your socks off, really. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, certainly a really tough and reliable um, and not too out of control climber. That's the thing, you know, they're, they're a moderate grower. Mm. They can cover a nice area, but they won't, mm. you know, come in the back door when you're not looking sort of thing when you're away for a couple of weeks. <clears throat> no, well, I've always had... Well, it's the second one I had, but it used to be under the veranda, so I put this outside, mm. but it, I only put the pot outside. I didn't put it in the ground. Mm. Oh, well, if it can have a spot in the ground, I would do that. I definitely, yes. Yeah. And and would it get, uh, give it sort of seaweed mixture or something? Wouldn't help to help it get established. Or, or it give it a bit of TLC generally till it, it really you know shoots what away. What a fish emulsion does that do? 
Whatever you like. So, you know, the fish emulsion, nice weak, weak liquid feed will, will sort of help to, to actually – and it'll be really coming into its um, its growing season now, so that's going to, it's going to want to grow. Now's the time. Yeah, yes. so, yeah, liquid feed fairly regularly is, is a good idea. But, you know, I guess if you're going to plant it, just make sure you prepare the soil reasonably well for your planting. You say it's sandy soil, I would certainly incorporate some homemade compost and a bit of bit of old manure, and, and then hopefully it'll have everything it needs. Thank you. You know, mulch well, all that, all that you know, regular TLC <laughs> stuff. But they're very tough plants. Good, yeah. thanks very much. Good okay. luck, Val. Thank you. Now, we really should mention, of course, we've got a, a brand new um, horticultural and gardening festival coming up in Melbourne. Um, it's, it's, not, um, it's not in competition with, with MIFCUS, Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show. What it does is it's giving Melbourne the opportunity to have a, an autumn flower show and a spring flower show. And uh, the emphasis on this particular um, gardening festival is all about not just, just plants and not just garden design, but all about um, plant to table. Um, so lots and lots of um, of cooking demonstrations, what to pl- what to plant that you can then bring back inside into the kitchen. So I'm really looking forward to it. Lots of workshops, lots of great um, guest speakers. Uh, Peter Cundall um, is being flown across, especially from Tassie. It'd be great to catch up with Peter Millie. Mm. Yeah, no, it should be great. Um, we have lots of big names. Our good friend Stephen Ryan's going to be out there, and he's also going to be actually having a stall this year, which will be amazing. He's never oh, he's had a stall before. There. Yes, good yes, boy. Yes, <laughs> Simon, you're going to be there. Yes, I will. Yeah, I'll be speaking about. Uh, I'll be doing a talk on heirloom vegetables, and I will be doing another one on the gardens of Japan. Uh, why Japanese gardens are, are so different, why they're so unique, and a little bit about their history and some of their design features and uh, so forth. And um, I'll also be sitting on a panel and having a, a Q&A panel discussion with uh, Tim Whistle from the Royal Botanical Gardens Melbourne and Stephen Ryan and someone else who I've now forgotten. <laughs> but it'll be someone interesting. There's yes, plenty absolutely. of interesting speakers there. Yep. We've got Angus Stewart. Uh, oh, it's Angus. Coming That's down. who it is. It's Angus. It's there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so Angus is coming down from Sydney for it. Um, we've got Attila Capitani, who, of course, yep. is all things succulents. Mm. Uh, He's doing an interesting talk, actually, on, on vertical orchids because, I mean, we don't think of orchids as succulent plants, but, you know, these epiphytic orchids that have to grow up in the air with no contact with the soil, exactly. they're essentially succulents. And so he'll be talking about creating vertical gardens with ep- epiphytic orchids, which is one talk I'll be definitely going Certainly, to. Certainly, and native orchid species, you know, like the Sydney rock orchid, probably yep. our most famous you know, epiphytic orchid is a rock orchid. It grows yep. on stone. That's yep. what, it, what it's used and to And sometimes doing. in very exposed sites too. Where yeah, just the just, smallest amount of leaf litter might gather yeah. and uh, and a bit of a bit of rain. Humidity. So certainly, yeah. I mean, I was actually another thing I thought about bringing in that I didn't was was my uh, roadkill. Um, it's now called Thelichiton, I think, the Dendrobium yep. group of uh, Australian orchids. But I found a clump on the side of the road, you know, completely exposed, just a huge clump mm. um, that I threw on the back of the Ute a couple of years ago, and you know, popped it into a milk crate with some bark and and it's you know flowering its head off and yep. you know only an epiphytic orchid could survive that sort yeah, of exposure yeah, exactly. on, a, on a verge before it uh, comes home with the next gardener but yep. um yeah okay so incredibly tough plants well the full details of the show it's it's happening running from the 9th to the 11th of october the venue is the melbourne showgrounds um epson road there in ascot vale uh cost uh 25 per person there's a concession of 20 dollars and that concession also applies to anyone with the seniors card. 
Uh, Under-16s are free with adults. There will be a family ticket available for $40, which covers two adults and two two children. And there's a three-day pass, which is great, $30 for adults and $25 for groups and concession. Um, In particular, free entry for um, Veteran Affairs gold card holders. So I think that's that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, We'll, of course, be mentioning it right up until that weekend. And and if people do go along, I'm sure they're going to spot most of us out there in one form or another. But um, I'm really excited about Mm. it. This is the, the inaugural year. Um, but I really hope that it's it's here to stay. Absolutely. Well, you know, Peter Cundall doesn't really um, do doesn't come out of um, retirement very often these days. So it's going to be such a treat to have Peter uh, talking. And in fact, the whole timetable has been cleared around him. So there's nothing that competes <laughs> with Peter Cundall because people will want to hear Peter Cundall. Oh, speak. absolutely. And um, yeah, and, well, it's good because we can all hear him too. But there'll be yeah, Stephen Ryan and Costa will be there, and I'll be there, and. Angus will be there. And Most Angus of the gardening and... show will be there, yeah, that's for absolutely. sure. absolutely. So yeah. come along. It should be good. Oh, it should be great fun. Okay, we have our very good friend, Graham Morrison, online. Good morning, Graham. Good morning to Pam, AB, Simon and Millie. Uh, just, uh, I listened to your program this morning. It was just such a joy. This enthusiasm for our plants that just emanates from your program there. It does my old heart so, so, so much good. <laughs> good on you, Graham. Good to hear your voice too, Graham. You know how much we love it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, Simon, uh, I just thought I might. I haven't had contact with you since our cherry blossom tour in Japan, and uh, I thought for the listeners they should be aware of. Look, I was privileged to go to this botanical tour of the cherry blossom of Japan, and uh, you were. Uh, a magnificent guide who steered us through the two with so much information and stuff. And you know, if you're list- the listeners out there get a chance to go on that, t- that that cherry blossom tour, it was the best tour of my life. And I thought I'd just you know put put, put it out there for you. Oh, thank you, Graham. That's very kind of you to say so. Well, you were a lovely person to have on the on the trip too, which made oh, all well, the difference. <laughs> I, I was just thinking as you were talking about Japan, I must try and go on go on a tour with Simon one year. That would be yeah. good fun. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good fun. How, how are all your fruit trees getting along, Graham? Edible. Yes, yes, I'm, they're very good. Talking about aphis, a bit of aphis on my uh, on my uh, peach trees there. Mm. I, I got the hose out the other day is another way to go sort of thing. You know, with a, with a fair sort of a hose uh, blast, you can, you, you can you know, t- t- take them off the tree to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One, 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 one I get to go. But now I'm up to about 45 different edible fruit. Uh, Wow. Enthusiastic as well. <laughs> yeah, good on you. Okay. All, all the Thanks for calling in, Graham. Bye. Amelia, you brought in a little book this morning. I did. Uh, I pi- I, look, I picked up a little book. I, um, I've already made it so dirty, I'm not going to be able to give it away. I just looked at it and went, the gentleman said to me, is that a gift? I said, oh, not yet. Oh, you know, it will be. <laughs> um, but look, I, you know, it's, um, it's a book called The Gardener's Latin, which is the language of plants explained by Richard Bird. It's been published by the National Trust in the UK, National Trust Books. Um, but I, I have a book that I've had since I studied horticulture, which is just called Plant Names Simplified. Um, and I found it really useful as a student um, just to get my head around it. And I know a lot of 3CR listeners would be reasonably comfortable with 
the use of um, botanical names and scientific names. But, um, you know, time and time again I say to people it, it just it just is useful for unlocking information. And, and what I really liked about this book is the way it's actually laid out. So uh, explains, you know, wh- how, you know, botanical nomenclature works, um, where names have been derived from. But it goes through sort of sections like colour um, and talks about, you know, for example... Um, the Helleborus niger, you know, you know, it in- indicates that the colour of the roots of the black. roots of the plant, yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, you know, and uh, goes through different colour, um, place names, seasonal, and sort of um, explains to you um, what different um, scientific names uh, where they come from. You know, so it might be describing the shape of the leaf, or it might be describing where that plant came from. It it might be describing the smell, like mm. um, fetid, you know, mm. uh, the fragrance of a, of a plant. So I just thought it was actually a a really nice way to lay out and a really simple um, little book. So make a really nice um, gift for someone who's mm. learning horticulture, starting to study horticulture mm. or getting into gardening because there's no doubt that unlocking some of those names n- not only unlocks um, what they might look like and where they come from, but therefore it then unlocks how they might want to grow. Mm. If mm. something's called angustifolium, it's likely to be a narrow grey leaf mm-hmm. uh, and it's likely to want to grow in a, a hot spot. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. So, um, you if know. If it's aquatica, it's going to be a water plant. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I just thought it was a really nice little book and, uh, you know, I, yeah, I was going to give it away, but now it's dirty, so I have to keep it. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Don't put it in a basket with plants and dirt, Millie. That's, uh... But look, the other little thing that I brought in, which is um, I've been dragging this around for a couple of years now. Um, I bought this off a friend at a market who was living with the guy who makes them, and, and they're now having a lot of success. I'm, I'm holding um, probably my favourite tool, um, and I don't carry a lot of digging tools. I tend to do a lot of, you know, sort of uh, handwork. But um, this is a, a little copper hand tool, which is made out of a piece of old copper pipe. Um, it's... It's, what, 25 centimetres in length. Um, it's it's only still that narrow width of the copper pipe, but it's been split and flattened out to form a little trowel. And uh, it's made by a guy called Travis, and he, he sells them now online as Graffa Tools, which is G-R-A-F-A, uh, which I think is an old Nordic word for or for dig or dirt or, you know, so Graffa is, has meaning. And he makes a lot of kind of wooden-handled, quite fancy tools, but I keep telling him they're rubbish and the only people that will buy them are <laughs> people who are buying them for gifts, you know, because this is the tool, this solid copper. You'll never um, wear it cap out. On it, you lose them. You know, I yeah. go, Jimmy the Beatty got one and he lost it that weekend. But I said, don't worry, it'll turn up, you know, because they are kind of that. When you buy the, the new ones, they're quite a bright sort of brand new copper. Mine's, yep. a, mine's an old um, copper. But, look, I love it because it slips into my – I can put it into the side pocket on my shorts. Mm-hmm. It's not a cumbersome or heavy tool, no. um, but it's strong as can be. Mm. You know, I bent the – top of it and then I just put it on a bit of wood and bang hit it with back. a hammer and bang it back into position. But um, just a really well, great fact, Millie, simple tool. Graffa tools have now got a stall at the new Melbourne Upmarket, which is a new market that's happening every uh, first and third Saturdays of the week outside um, in the grounds of ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art on Sturt Street. Um, and it's a curated design market. Uh, it's also got fantastic produce, um, vegetables, and there'll be fruit later in the year. Um, I've been running gardening workshops. Uh, well, I ran the first gardening workshop last week on gardening in small spaces and Graffa have got a stall there selling their copper tools. Yeah, so Travis and Harriet, you know, they're, they're, they're selling them all around the world now. They're selling them to the UK, um, all sorts of places. But I just think it's such a – I think it's just called the trowel or something like that if you have a look online. There's a range of tools, but I think the simplest one is the best. And it, 
retails for about 50 bucks now. Yeah. Um, and uh, he said when it was cheaper, people don't buy the cheap tools. <laughs> but it actually takes him longer to make than many of the others because it's mm. uh, it's completely handmade. It's nice that it's all in one piece. There's nothing yes. to break. One, nothing to break, you know. Mm. That's, that's what I, you know, we talked about the timber handles and I said you've got to make sure you finish them really well because that's what's going to deteriorate in, in the garden if, if that's what happens. But, yeah, Gruffer tools, worth having a look at. Made in Melbourne, handmade in actually in the west of Melbourne. Mm, great, great for a gift for overseas oh, people. fantastic, yeah. Very, very quickly, we'll go to Ron in Doncaster. You there, Ron? Yes, I am. Um, we'll have to be quick. Yeah, right. It's Nutty Helly, grafted passion fruit, first year, um, pruned by something in autumn. I don't know what it was, possums or birds or whatever, but all lost all the leaves. But I noticed in getting it ready for pruning that about one metre above the graft, it's like as if it's been sunburned, but it, it hasn't. It faces east. Um and the it's it's almost as if it's rotted on one side. It, it's soft. It's brown mm. and soft. When you push it in, probably about halfway through the stem, which is about 15 millimetres wide at that point, wanting to know, do I just cut it right off at this point and let it shoot again, hopefully? Because it's, as I say, about a metre above the graft. Yeah. That's I would what say so. Doing. Yeah. 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 It, it sounds like, I mean, even the cold weather could have got yeah. to it. Could be frost, yeah. It's a yeah, yeah, yeah. re- real burn look about it, about, oh, I suppose, 75 millimetres long. Just really watch watch for suckers. If it's a grafted form, just yeah. um, if you're going to remove that top growth, I'd be really diligent um, mm. about, you know, watching for suckers. There is some firmness when I push in on the burnt, what appears to be a burnt part. Yep. Do I, would I, should I be better the chance leading it and just... Uh, I, I would say if it's only a young plant, that pruning it out now is the way to go. Is it? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Thank good you. time to do it. Thanks okay. A lot. Yeah, bye. All right. Uh, we've run out of time for yet another week. Um, just uh, a reminder that um, that interview we had this morning was with Wendy Whiteley about the uh, newly released book, Wendy Whiteley and the Secret Garden, published by Lantern, written by Janet Hawley. Recommended retail price is seventy nine ninety nine, and if you can get your hands on a copy of that book, I know you will absolutely love it. I've I've been reading it over the last two weeks and having an absolutely wonderful time immersing myself in it. We'll of course be back uh, next week, and in fact, we have our good friend Graham Morrison uh, actually in the studio next week, along with Stephen Ryan. So do tune in at seven thirty. Big thank you to Jan and Derek who've been happening all the uh, handling all the outside lines. But uh, till next week, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.